Howard, you asked me an interesting question a moment ago. That is, why is it difficult to talk to people? Because um, I was explaining how uh, I took up diving in order to you know, find an activity that I can do with my wife for the rest of our lives. The nice thing about diving is you don't have to talk to the person. You're, you're underwater looking at beautiful things uh -huh. and sharing. And there's a kind of oneness in that. But I'd like to return to that question in the following way. And maybe I'll draw upon the Phaedrus. Mm -hmm. um, the opening of that dialogue is very famous. Socrates says to his friend, Phaedrus, where are you coming from and where are you going? And that seems to me like a good opening question for anyone, even a stranger, to get a conversation going. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so where are, where are you coming from? What brought you to the college? And where are you going? Well, on the, on the question of why it's difficult, Mm -hmm. to talk to someone uh, since we were talking about Henry Ford part one. Yeah. Right. Because um, Hal says at one point that now I've learned to talk to everyone in his own language. All right. And so I think the real question is how do you get out of your own language into another's hmm. to be able to talk to him? Because, you know, it seems to me increasingly in the work I do both here at the college and out in the world, uh, the fundamental skill that's necessary is listening. And you can't talk to anyone, uh, what I saw so much, so frequently, uh, both with me and my colleagues and students here. That's strange being in this room. I think I've spent 40 years of my life well, in this room. This is where we do our uh, senior awards. Yeah. Right, I know. Yeah. yeah, when I when I was a senior, just to shift off, we, we I had my senior oral in room, the old room 24. Mm-hmm. And, um, in McDowell. In McDowell, yeah. And, uh, the famous know, 24. The famous room 24, right. And uh, uh, it's interesting that, that uh, listening is, is, it's so easy to superimpose, uh, turn what you hear into a corollary of yourself. Mm -hmm. And so somehow you end up, you think you're talking to another person, but you end up talking to yourself. Mm -hmm. And very frequently, I think Socrates is accused of talking to himself, you know, yeah. right? That by Thrasymachus, by, by people who were resistant. Well, you said to me a moment ago, you yeah. think Socrates does not listen well. No, I think he's a terrible listener. <laughs> <You know? laughs> really? Yeah, I don't think he's very open. I mean, Plato must have been an extraordinary listener mm -hmm. to uh, catch, catch the nuances. Where do, where do you think that comes across best in, in the dialogues? Are any moments jump out at you where you say, ah, there's a, a failure of Socrates to really listen to this person. Uh, well, I think that when, when Mino exasperated, uh, he's, you know, says he's a torpedo fish, or when Callicles says, you know, you're, you're tricking us, you know, yeah. you're not being straight, you, you shift from one to the other. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and so certainly here at the college, uh, the temptation has been to do a, a, a more dramatized interpretation of of the sequence through a dialogue, mm -hmm. and uh, but uh, and that always troubled me. I think, uh, you know, I mean, I, I like Klein a great deal, but I, I think that the, uh, the sort of dramatization uh, sort of lets Socrates off scot free. The work I do outside the college, of course, is very much on what's involved in in a discussion. Mm -hmm. And I wrote I wrote a piece recently that I don't think uh, I will publish. Uh, in the form that it's in, it, it was, it's called Beyond Socratic Seminar. Mm. And it's subtitled an oxymoron, Socratic Seminar, an oxymoron on the loose. Interesting. Yeah. You know, in other words, yeah. why, why Socrates becomes the image 
of something called a discussion or listening to another. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's always, whereas I would think Hal is a better image. In order to turn to be a king, you really need, in this world, I mean, in, in a, in a post-Richard II world, where you have a sort of divine justification, or imagine you do, where you have to sort of reconstruct the sense of legitimacy, that you really need to uh, be attentive mm -hmm. to really listening to where other people are. Now, yeah. Hal has a, a, a mentor, though, in Falstaff. Oh, you think he does? Yes, I think so. <laughs> I mean, do you, do you need that? I mean, do you need a, someone to get you into that world? Someone that well, you, I'm not sure. you I mean, can it's... be a friend with, and then that opens the doors to everything. Well, maybe temporarily. I, I mean, when, when Falstaff comes in, I, I'm sorry to shift this off from, from the futures onto you're an actor. You know, you like Hal. I'm interested in Hal, and yeah. more so in Falstaff. But when Falstaff, uh, when, when, it's, when they first see or exchange with one another, uh, and, and what is it, Falstaff asks Hal, what time of day is it? And Hal responds, you know, uh, what, what do you have to do with time of day? And then Falstaff goes into how he is... Uh, you know, a minion of the moon, mm -hmm. a counterfeiter, essentially, mm -hmm. the moon being the goddess of counterfeiters, mm -hmm. right? And then at the end, that whole Hotspur scene about counterfeiting, and you sort of wonder, you know, uh, is counterfeiting important? To it, listening? To listening, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And I'm wondering, I'm not sure, maybe at some point he had to, he had to learn something from Paul Sapp, but what it is, I, I'm not sure, perhaps it is that to be an actor, or to improvise. Yeah, possibly. I mean, yeah. one thing that they uh, uh, teach you when you're trying to be an actor mm -hmm. is how to listen. Right. Because it's easy not to, because you have a script. So you memorize your lines, and then you're on, you know, you know, you know what you're supposed to yeah. say, when yeah. you're supposed to say it. And I wonder if that has something to do with the problem you're talking about. I think, it's, I think it does, you, you know, know. I mean, what the difference is between hearing... People lead scripted lives. That's right. To really listen to someone who can surprise you at any time yeah. with something unexpected, maybe right. maybe that's. that's well, I think what that's the problem. Is. Yeah, I think that's the problem that you find uh, uh, brought a lot of people to the college. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that that dissatisfaction with the kind of education that they had had scripted. Well, their past had been they're there as listener. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, where you know there's always someone who's the authority of and sort of uh, the judge of legitimacy, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, and so do you have a voice? And so the question of voice, I think, uh, and that's the question, I think that's always the case in Socrates is, is he speaking for another, uh, you, you know, you mean for Plato or no, no, for Socrates, is he putting words into another person? Well, it yeah. seems to me that to yeah. get back to Hal for a moment, that Hal has this ability to make people forget that he's, you know, the next king. Yeah. That he's just right. one of them. He can play that part very yeah, well. Right, and it's a part that he, yeah. he learns. I mean, in, except uh, uh, when again he has to speak, it's the problem. You know, you get three sort of views of language with Glendower, Hotspur, and, and Hal, mm -hmm. you know, and they're very, very different. And Hotspur, uh, in some sense, is almost a, he is the son of Henry IV. I mean, he's mm -hmm. a complete nominalist. Who you know? Who's uh, feels he can bring the world into existence through language? You, you know, he can change the course of the river. There's nothing right. natural, right? And Glendower, you know, of course, is is so embedded with the spirits that he's a kind of 
Richard II, but writ, writ large, writ for the whole world, and Hal's mm -hmm. got to sort of uh, work in between those two. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I guess... Yeah, I, want, I wanted to ask yeah. you in a moment more about yeah. that river, but... Uh, so do you think, again, with Hal in mind, or with Socrates in mind, that to listen well requires somehow giving up who you are in order to be the other? No, I think you have to become incredibly aware of who you are. Right? Because you have to block yourself from imposing yourself on another when uh, you imagine that you're not. That's what uh, happens so much in our classes, of course. You know, and there's always that danger. I mean, one of the is that if if the tutor is going to be the tutor uh, and uh, not professorial and open the floor to students uh, as peers in many ways, then I think that uh, the, the tutor must be very, very uh, careful to be able to judge uh, when people are or are not listening to one another, when they're simply listening to themselves. Yeah. How did you learn how to do that? To listen? I'm not. Listen. I'm, I'm a terrible listener. <laughs> I'm really <laughs> terrible listener. And uh, I know okay. some of the programs, I'm, I'm not as bad as some of the people I've met. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but I'm very bad. Mm -hmm. uh, when I'm when I'm involved with a group, and uh, in a seminar of some sense, then then uh, I can, I have to listen, and I do, because uh, I have to listen to what is really so much between the lines. But the real issue of of being able to listen, I think, previously requires uh, uh, being able to genuinely question yourself, mm -hmm. and to notice those things that that you you are imposing one way or the other. And probably uh, be, having some practice as an actor trains you for that in a way. I can see that. I mean, I think we should, uh, you know, there's always a question of whether we should have one of the arts. Uh, it would be interesting if everyone had to do some performance. Do some performance. Well, yeah, I think that, I'll yeah. tell you one thing. I yeah. just saw a production of Hamlet, uh -huh. which was extraordinary. Yeah. One of the reasons why it was extraordinary, and I found this out afterwards, uh -huh. was the director would tell the performers privately before curtain to do a certain scene, a certain line, a little differently than they had previously done it. So, it, so, and the other actors would have to respond to this on the spot, yeah, yeah, right. not knowing what yeah, yeah, was right. coming up. Yeah. So the performance was always, in that sense, like a rehearsal. You never knew what could happen. Yeah. And when that's the case, yeah. you really have to listen and and bravely be prepared to respond to anything. And the other effect that that had yeah. was it slowed things down a little bit. And you'd think that would be bad in a stage production, um, but it wasn't. Oh, it just created that's a, that's an, fantastic. an incredible yeah. sort of tension right. in the moment where you think anything can happen. Yeah, and I think a, a, our classes here, we were talking about that they're not scripted, mm -hmm. uh, that they're incredibly unpredictable. I mean, you can take control but uh, if you want it to happen in a genuine way, it has to be uh, unpredictable. But then there's also this element of time. You have to be willing to, you know, not feel rushed to fill the silence. Just absolutely. The absolutely. You yeah, you have to, to live with it. I mean, listening does yes. imply silence, doesn't right. it? Right, absolutely. You know, and uh, uh, you, have, you have to hear what is not said. You have to begin to understand who is about to speak. Mm -hmm. Because you, I mean, as a t faculty member here, you really are, are a bridge. I mean, you, you have a number of roles, but one of them is to be a bridge. Mm -hmm. And you're really trying to sense 
who it is in the room who needs your help because we're not going to call on somebody. We're not going to say, you know, Lewis, you know, what, what did you do? And so uh, you have to find other uh, other modes of being attentive mm -hmm. to uh, the. It's it's like in live, and that's you know uh, how things go into motion. You know they they have this infinite solicitation toward motion, and that's what happens when when, when someone's about to speak. You that's know, right. it, it's like that that first step yeah. into motion when it's you know you're finally MV squared. Yeah. You know, uh, and uh, you're always being attentive to that. And it's interesting that uh, uh, that we're talking about things at the college. We're also talking about the other work I do. Um, that uh, someone has uh, asked us to do work. Uh, with people in special forces as part of their training. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, because uh, when they're in the midst of whatever mission they have, uh, everything is completely uncertain and unpredictable, as well as rank. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and so everybody has to respond to take on leadership and know when, when you should do that. And so that would be an interesting thing to do. We're supposed to do uh, a workshop out in uh, UNLV. Like with books, seminars, or well, with, it, with a, a touchdowns program, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, supposed to do one at UNLV for people who manage crises, mm -hmm. you know. But it's the same thing that you're, you're bringing up in terms of listening, right? That you've got to uh, both appreciate the silence, mm -hmm. you know. And it was very, very interesting. I mean, some people are very uncomfortable with silence. I'm not, particularly, I'm not particularly comfortable with it, mm -hmm. but I know uh, in terms of. Uh, what I do both at the college and here that that uh, 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 how how many times in a seminar uh, have you asked the opening question then <laughs> to be greeted you what know by six seconds of silence six seconds of silence <laughs> is infinite mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, 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 it's an infinitude of time mm -hmm. and, uh, and well, what do you where do you think that comes from is it a cultural thing with us? Well, I think as in Americans? part it's cultural, but in part I think that there's you know, just we uh, feel that we have to just fill the voids all the time with something there. Yeah, and people are, are very very uh, uneasy when nothing is happening, and they don't understand that. Yeah. Uh, that sometimes it's, sometimes it reminds me of Pascal too. Yeah, right. Most of human misery is is traceable to the fact that someone chasing you rabbits. You can't sit alone with yourself That's in right. your room. Yeah, right. There has to be a kind of yeah. busyness yeah. going on. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but you know, another place this comes up is, is in our math program, which I know you've done a lot of thinking about, but when a student goes to the board, in a way they have a script, mm -hmm. right, exactly. they know what they're going to demonstrate and they probably prepared a little bit, but then you could ask a question, you get asked a question uh, and suddenly, you know, the script sort of disappears and you have to start improvising or or saying yeah, what you're I doing, think, or just I, being yeah. at the board changes your perspective on anything. It's very different from being on a paper in a book. Yeah, it's, very, pre it's very present uh, for us here in mathematics. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, it's most uh, for the undergraduates. I mean, I think the GI uh, uh, does not face this problem, but every undergraduate we, we have who comes in is carrying uh, a history of habits having to do with what they think of themselves in terms of mathematics. Mm -hmm. You know, are they good at it or are they, are they not good at it? And it really comes to the surface in the beginning of the junior year. Uh, and uh, and when they're doing calculus, yeah, Newton yeah, and the like. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and so I remember once starting a, a junior math uh, tutorial, uh, knowing that within weeks the class is going to fragment to try to avoid that fragmentation. And so you have some people who are convinced that they can't do it and others who are convinced that, that well, they've been told that they're wonderful at it.
And so I, I asked the class, uh, uh, who here had, was told that they were very good at mathematics? And three or four raised their hands, you know? And I said, tell us what it's like from the inside. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And um, uh, so they started talking about how, how, yes, they were very, very good at mathematics, but they were very bad at other things. You know, and especially that that their ability in mathematics often set a model for what they would expect for themselves in non-mathematical realms toward people oh. and other things, and that it was terrifically difficult. You know, and suddenly it was all out on the table, so that the people who who were supposedly not good at mathematics uh, were now able to talk about why they weren't good at mathematics. You know, that we could mm -hmm. we weren't going to have the fear at the board. Because I think it's always the, the problem in our classes, and that's one of the beauties of the college, I think, is, uh, and also the GI, so many people have, have said, you know, I really changed my mind about who, what I can do, what I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, through some class that they had. It, often it happens in, in the GI math, yeah. math tutorial, that yeah. they'll say, you know, I was never able to do it, and now suddenly I, I, I feel different about myself. Mm -hmm. You know, and I recommend that you have your wife attend the GI math tutorial. <laughs> you know, something to talk to her about. You know, well, get, speaking of that again, I mean, you know, I uh, I sometimes wonder if mathematics is the one area where a group of people from whatever background can can find a true common ground and experience oneness of mind as they're doing, say, a Euclid demonstration or calculus, because it's not so much a matter of your differences and your feelings and your opinions. I mean, it, it has a kind of um, sort of absoluteness and purity that is beautiful and that allows you to disappear into the work that other things don't. You think that's it. right? I'm not sure. I, I think they can they can have a oneness of mind on other things. <laughs> has that, have you yes, had I, that? Yes, I mean, I don't think happen? that... Yeah, and I don't think it, uh, I, I wouldn't push the mathematics uh, too much. I mean, I think that there's a, a sense of, uh, you know, what you're saying, a kind of atemporal mm -hmm. uh, dimension to the mathematics. And I think that, that uh, uh, pure reason. Can be, yeah, I understand. I'm, I'm not a yeah. big pure reason person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, in one sense, I'm a very big pure reason person. I mean, uh, because uh, yeah. I think the, the one author that was always on my mind here was, of course, the critique of pure reason. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, and uh, are we all neo-Kantians? I mean, do we all believe that we, we are we emerge at birth with a language, and the language contains categories, and that shapes our our view of the world? And the question is, uh, it's just that some of the categories are are or none of the categories are a priori. And I think I wrote my senior essay. I think I told you that mm -hmm. I wrote my senior essay on, you know, how content, how there can always be an a priori, but the a priori changes over time. You know, in other words, uh, so Kant and Hegel, how do you get them together? Yeah. Uh, that, and I think I've still, I mean, I've always been on that issue about, you know, how do, how do you get conceptual change, how the world, how does the world change? And, uh, uh, and yet, uh, how, how do we deal with the fact that we have systems of beliefs and faiths and whatever? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's precisely those things that are invisible to us. I mean, Mill said it's kind of the second nature that becomes first nature to us, you know, the, mm -hmm. these socially aspects of uh, social dimensions that I think is a, a great deal uh, uh, of uh, the importance of the college and having to 
sort of think through who we are and where we came from, the way you opened the feed. I mean, where, where'd you come from? Where you come right, from? Right, right. Well, I come from, you know, uh, thousands of years of, uh, of history and tradition, you know, whether I lived for those 3,000 years and, and certainly uh, coming out of a certain environment that is filled with books and expectations and habits that uh, I've got to know how to, how to deal with those and how to make those visible so that I'm not just, uh, you know, sort of responding to my own habitual mm-hmm. attitudes, which I don't even know. Yeah, One can see that even in mathematics. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. you have, say, 2,000 years of yes. Ptolemy. Yes, right. Now, I came, when I, I, when I left high school, I left early. Uh, I needed to get out as quickly as possible, and, and I was supposed to be very, very good at mathematics. So I went to a place where a very important mathematician was, was teaching. Uh, and when I was there, I was in a class with six kids, six other students with him. And I suddenly, I realized, that, yes, I could understand it, but I was not creative in mathematics. That this was not what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. So I left. And so I had had a lot of mathematics when I came here because I went back again. Uh, and um, uh, in the, uh, uh, when I came here, I had had a great deal of mathematics. And certainly Euclid, from the perspective of mathematics, is bad mathematics. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's anyone writing Euclid now would would you know lose their professional credentials, you know, and so it becomes very interesting to look at Euclid. You mean some of the definitions and well, well just the just the whole structure, the, the, whole, the whole structure, structure of it. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's so very different from what Hilbert mm-hmm. created. Uh, yeah. Hilbert is is mathematic, you know, the model of mathematics, not Euclid. So I also was very good in math coming to, to the college. And, um, but one thing I learned here, which you just mentioned, is that the Euclid can be approached as a story. Yeah. That is, it's not this necessitated machine. Right. That is, it's telling a story. It has a kind of plot, has characters, themes. Absolutely. And, then, and that really helps a lot with students who, as you were saying, might feel themselves to be, you know, the poetic types, not right. the math types. Yeah, I, one thing then, I, oh, then they they read it as a book. Right, that's what they should be doing. Mm-hmm. It should be a text, mm-hmm. in other words. And I think that that uh, uh, it's interesting that the college began uh, as uh, I don't know if I should say as as an attack on, or certainly taking. A, a, a serious distance from the departmentalization of, of knowledge, mm-hmm. you know, so that there was mathematics, there was physics, there That's was right. literature. And even though we have tutorials, you know, named that, you know, uh, so we have a mathematics tutorial. Nonetheless, uh, the mathematics is not anything that, that I would have done uh, majoring in mathematics somewhere or you, you know, doing mathematics. It's all uh, mathematics that uh, is both the source of our current mathematics mm-hmm. and yet radically different with a very different perspective. And what's interesting is that um, it's always been interesting to me that, that uh, sometimes tutors, my colleagues, uh, and whenever I'm archoning uh, a math, I try to get them not to do this because uh, except when they ask students to do alternate proofs. Oh. Right? I mean, there are no alternate proofs in Euclid. Yeah. Uh, the question is, when do you first see an alternate proof? And, and it, what's interesting is that in the introduction uh, to the phenomenology, Hegel's phenomenology of mind, 
uh, he talks about the difference between philosophy and mathematics. And in, in mathematics, uh, you start in a certain place and you have a path and you get to a goal. And every path is equal to every other path in a sense, mm-hmm. as long as you get to the goal. Whereas in philosophy, the getting there is, is, is itself the important thing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as part of, as part of the there that you're getting. Uh, I believe that Euclid w- was more like what Hegel says is about philosophy uh. than what he says about mathematics, you know, and for us, certainly, uh, the way there is irrelevant for us, meaning modern mathematics. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. they can be one way can be better, can be simpler, can be more beautiful. But but what, what you want to do is get to point B. So that sounds like uh, everything tends towards being philosophy. Whereas I would have said everything tends towards being like literature, a story. Well, I think that's that's true because it's well, almost including like, Hegel. Yeah, I, it's then I think that that if you look at a Euclidean proof. Uh, each proof is like a poem, mm-hmm. you know. In other words, there's no substitutability <clears throat> on on propositions, even though they, you know, they have these little brackets uh, in the margins, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which is probably something Theon of Alexandria did, uh, you know. In other words, what what the reference was, but if you, in other words, if you the the way there and what you see when you're there are connected, and I think I think for Hegel. Uh, that's the case, that it should be read more the way we read a poem, that the pieces are inseparable. Uh, and and wow. I think that I think we're better doing uh, looking at Euclid uh, that way. And you can if it's a text. Mm-hmm. But if it's mathematics, then you're carrying all this, all, all this weight yeah. of what happened to you in the third grade or the fifth grade. Well, I do think with Euclid, it's yeah. a very verbal mathematics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's meant to be yeah. articulated yeah, right. and shown. And I found, by the way, in reading Hegel for the first time here at the college, yeah. that it helped me immensely to read it aloud. Oh, yeah. Is that, that's interesting. Because, uh-huh. and, to, and to force myself to go through it at a reasonable pace, not yeah. stopping at every word and sentence to figure it out, but just to be yeah. swept along with it and, and get a sense of, 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 you know, its power as, as speech, yeah. where things are being created sort of spontaneously finding words for something no, i think that's right i think you yeah. know and uh um and i know that in, uh our early lecture i gave here uh uh which was on augustine's confessions that uh i did three readings of augustine's confessions one as it would be read uh by virgil one by dante and one by hegel you know, in other words, how would mm-hmm. they look at how would they look at the interrelation, you know, uh, of the pieces uh, in, in Augustine's Confessions, uh, and it was uh, it was the difference between a, a a work that is great and a work that is my favorite, and I tried to establish a, a category of something that haunts you. That there was a, a hauntingness about certain certain works mm-hmm. because of the tension between you and it. It's that one that haunts you. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was trying to say that that uh, you know, it's in almost in every uh, text we read here, that hauntingness of a sort of great distance between you and it comes comes into play. Mm-hmm. You know, we could say, well, that's uh, and uh, that makes it both exciting, but also gives you an opportunity to look at yourself in a way that you could never look at so without I- them. Distance, you mean you're sensing something great, but you're at a distance. You're at a great distance. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it. It's important, but it's absurd. I see. You, you know, I have, we have a colleague here, I won't say yeah. who, but who says that 
he, uh, in a way, fears teaching that text because every time he does, he finds himself wanting uh, Augustine's Augustine confessions, confessions, finds himself getting converted. <laughs> and he's an atheist, so he doesn't want to be converted. <laughs> but it has that kind of power. But I guess what you're saying, you sense the power, but not the conversion. No, I, I, I don't think he was going to convert me. No, <laughs> no I named my son after him. Mm. <laughs> my, son, my son is named Austin, Austin uh, which okay. is uh, Augustine's name in the Middle Ages. Uh -huh. That was the one thing I and his mom agreed about. We both felt Augustine was an incomparable something, mm -hmm. whatever. Uh, so are you uh, an atheist then? Am I? I have no, I, I have no idea. I'm uh -huh. beginning to believe that there's a divinity that shapes our ends. <laughs> you know, okay. you know I, I, I really have rough-hewn them, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, but uh, beginning to feel that, that I'm not sure what I think. Well, I was wondering, though, if, if we can relate this question of belief, belief yeah. in God or yeah, well, I think the immortal I, soul, yeah. those questions to yeah. the problem of listening. Well, I think that's true. I think because uh, th that gets back to the whole issue of community. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that, you know, it's so interesting that when you, when you spend time with alums, uh, uh, that what they remember, you know, is not what Descartes did in the third meditation, mm -hmm. that they remember a sense of community that was here. And I think that that was what struck me. I mean, I came here as a perspective uh, before I got the math assignment and was going to leave. And, you know, I went, went into a freshman seminar, I was on Lucretius, and I walked out, and there were two people who, well, one had been in the seminar and one hadn't been, and we spent the next three hours down in the coffee shop talking. And they welcomed me. I mean, you were already part of that. It was, you know, and uh, uh, there was that sense of community, even though I think that there are difficulties within our community. But, I mean, it's the kind of thing where, where we criticize ourselves brutally. Mm -hmm. On the inside, you know, I was I was reading a piece by uh, uh, called uh, "Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man" by James Weldon Johnson, and he's talking about how how in the South they criticize themselves brutally to one another, but they'll defend themselves in the South mm -hmm. until death you know, uh, to outsiders, and uh, it, I think that that uh, is very much the case at the college. That you know, it, it, so what's what's the bottom line principle of that community to say for a community of believers it would be so no, I don't core think we're a cult. yeah I don't think we're a cult you okay. know I mean, but I think there was that sense in which there are those moments that we all well it's it, in one sense I came back as a tutor here because of work I was doing uh, in a sense I mean I often thought that that the college was uh, something that I could take help take further and that was important because it was important for me as a student uh, but I really came back here because I could not teach in a department because of the work I was doing. I needed to be in a place where no one owned texts mm -hmm. so that I could read or work on whatever I wanted to do. So there was that sense that there was no proprietary sense, uh, you know, that I could or could not write about something mm -hmm. uh, here. But there was also the sense, I think, that, you know, that uh, I, th I think it's wonderful that we, we, we are Mr. or Miss. That we're all on a uniform salary scale, essentially we don't negotiate, you know. So, mm -hmm. and I think that's that that pervades. I mean, certainly there's tenure and non-tenure. There's that, and and uh, but and I think uh, along with the students, uh, aside from uh, certain things, there's an aspiration to our, us all being in a community, 
together. And Would you add to that then from our motto, um, learning to be free? That's the principle. Uh, I would I I would think that. Uh, or in your terms, no one owns the texts. It's everyone's. Yeah, I, I mean, that's an egalitarian principle. But it's also well, you're free to work on anything. Oh, I think that's without true. Without someone, yes, sort of yeah. getting in the way. In I, I think way. that that's an interesting phenomenon here because uh, I th think in general, when students think of something that they want to study, or fa faculty, when they think of something, the first thing they do is form a study group. Yeah. In other words, mm -hmm. do it with others, and, and that's that's intriguing to me, rather than, uh, so certainly before I came here, uh, even in the first year while I was here, everything that, that, even though I was starting groups, study groups all the time, uh, that that uh, there was a kind of solitariness, and I think there's a kind of anti-Cartesianism mm -hmm. in that, that mm -hmm. the, and I'm finding myself heading more and more uh, back toward uh, a sense in which uh, Aristotle uh, uh, is uh, saying very, very important things about the nature of of community, in the sense that that, that uh, I increasingly believing that we need to achieve a place where you, you you realize you're most yourself as an individual within community, and I, I'm and I would say that we see that sometimes in seminar that you find that that your own ideas are most yours within that environment of listening and speaking, and uh, uh, which seems so paradoxical since we're, we're raised on kind of a Hobbesian, yeah. Lockean, you know, individual, you know, and I think that's really part of the problem that, that we're seeing in this country uh, mm -hmm. on both sides, a sense, you know, uh, that, that, that sense in which uh, uh, there isn't a sense of community so you, your your ideas are most yours, or you become most self-aware. Yeah, I've said this before. Yeah, when you're talking and, and listening to others yeah, in yeah. seminar, exactly when and it's working or in an environment. That, but, you know, you know and, I, I've thought about this a lot actually in my own case. Mm -hmm. uh, say, uh, preparing for class yeah. or writing a lecture, and I do a lot of maybe most of my learning alone. That is working on a book or preparing. Yeah. Going to class seems more like testing it out. It's a kind of an experiment. Let's see how these ideas that I've been having fly or don't fly, and I'll get and people will respond to them. That'll give me new new ideas, and you know I'll no, come, I, I'll go yeah. back to my lonely room and work on it some more. Isn't yeah. isn't it an exchange then a back and forth well, so. between I, yeah. community and loneliness and lonely? Well, I, certainly I think I used to to operate that way that uh, I was terrific at teaching myself anything or exploring by myself increasingly as I've as I've taught here I find that that the most important moments do not happen in a solitary way I mean the the, the Rodin thinker is not is, is, happens, is, yeah. is uh, uh, unfortunately our problem mm -hmm. right and it happens the other way uh, and uh, and so, uh, uh, but I still think you know the the issue of of how am I most myself within community mm -hmm. is is the thing that that needs to be explored more here. And this is a good place, a wonderful, a rare place well, to here's be able an, to do that. Another uh, uh, 
challenge to that idea, yeah. though I do I do appreciate certainly the the power of it when it works well in seminar and tutorial. But in addition to doing a lot of satisfying work alone, uh, there are things that make oneself oneself that might be incommunicable, that you just don't want to talk about or share, or don't lend themselves to words, and hence maybe music or a, a visual or yeah. acting or some other medium might be appropriate. But um, isn't that also the case? In thinking about uh, issues of language, you know, about, uh, and um, another another thing with uh, uh, getting back to Augustine, because uh, I think he has uh, this sense. I mean, extraordinary intelligence is what we can see. You know uh, that he's uh, the whole composition of, of the Confessions is so remarkable. Uh, uh, though, of course, uh, we don't assign the two most important books, <laughs> twelve and thirteen. Right? Payoff. We, we break it off where he's trying to figure out what what, what use is philosophy in terms of uh, faith. Yeah. But the whole idea of, um, of listening and speaking charitably. Uh, reading charitably, uh, mm -hmm. which happens on that first line of Genesis, right? Uh, uh, in, in in those final books, we 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 keep away from our students. Uh, it's a big mistake. I mean, it's, we shouldn't do that, but it's fine because they, it, there's enough there already. But uh, I think that uh, uh, what what you're saying sounds like you know there's some difficulty in, in the words, as opposed to the to the speaker, you know, and certainly starting with Bacon, the, the and before that also, uh, it's the it's the it's the instrument language that needs to be improved, corrected, whatever, uh, either by retrieving you know the Adamic language or by creating new languages. But before that, it was really in, in the problem with the speaker, yeah. right? It's the willfulness uh, that that. Uh, and I think that's what's at issue in listening. That uh, I think that's what we're trying to do in our language tutorials: get students to be aware of language and what it can do at its best, because of the models that we give them. And it's it'll take them, I think, often much further than they've than they thought they can go in in becoming self-aware and communicating who they are. Uh, but I guess what I, the other thing I was having in mind, though, is if mm -hmm. people um, well, let me put it this way. So you've thought a lot about the dynamics of seminar and of power relationships that are a part of whether seminar works well or doesn't work well. Um, you know, gender relationships, race relationships, given your work not only here but in the prisons through touchstones. So how does one take all of that into account and so that people can who are different from each other, uh, experience of real community? Well, I think that we need to uh, become uh, more aware of our own limitations. I remember I, I was talking about the Harvard Club, you know, that, and uh, whenever I walked out of the Harvard Club, uh, I would feel a sense of failure. And uh, because uh, uh, these were highly able people uh, whose listening skills were 
nil, and their ability to question themselves was non-existent. And I remember going into the prison uh, uh, on a Tuesday, because I was still doing Monday and Thursday seminars. I'd be up at, Har at the Harvard Club on Sunday. Uh, Tuesday, I'd be in prison. And w once I came in and, and the men, this was at the at a prison that no longer exists. It's the Maryland House of Corrections, which was a medium maximum security. And you were doing seminars in there, right? Well, I was doing, uh, uh, I don't like that word. Uh, too much, <laughs> but yeah, I was doing I was doing touchdowns, okay. uh, and um, and so uh, I came in and um, was touchdowns is much more focused on process because it's like the precondition because you don't want to have a seminar where twenty percent of the people are active and twenty percent of the people are terrified. Mm -hmm. I mean that's what would really bothered me and it bothered Nick also because I figured uh, you know here here we had if anywhere you were gonna. I mean, we've gone all over the world and seen things, uh, th this type of environment. And certainly when I was running Aspen, same thing. <coughs> I'd see the same thing uh, here in, in Africa and China. It didn't matter where, where, where it was happening. You'd have 20% who were very, very active. And in our, student, our seminars, that happens too. A little bit better in the GI, actually, uh, than, than with yeah, undergraduates. But in undergraduates, it's, you know. And um, uh, I think that that uh, I think Nick and I both felt, hey, we, we, we know how to do this. Why is it that this is still happening? Because everyone who comes here has made a really incredible decision uh, about wanting to be here. You don't, as I said, yeah. when we were meeting, you don't get off the bus and just find yourself at St. John's. You know, you make a life-changing decision to, you know, and, and one respects all one's colleagues and all the students for having done that. Uh, and yet, so even though we want this to happen, why is it so rare? I mean, sometimes it does happen, uh, you know. And the question is, why Why is it so rare? Well, it's, it has nothing to do with desire. I think finally uh, it, it came to me that it had nothing to do with desire. It had to do with the sort of cultural inheritance of our sense of legitimacy and power and, mm -hmm. and the whole package. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, and that, uh, I think that's what launched me into uh, the whole issue that had always been present to me. Uh, what, what are the preconditions for community? I mean, uh, certainly my past brought that up. So um, those became uh, issues that I, I've been thinking about a lot mm -hmm. through the years. And yet, uh, but also the very things we read here play themselves out in, in the environment itself. You know, I mean, so... Uh, Such as? Uh, a desire for certainty. Uh. <laughs> it happens, you know, in all of our, in, in anyone's classes. You know, and uh, certainly you begin to see that in, in the meditations. Sure. Right? I mean, you know, and the... Uh, and you also uh, see with Descartes, yeah. whatever you do, don't make mistakes. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right, exactly. And you know that uh, uh, sin is error, mm -hmm. right? that, that, that mistake. Uh, and, uh, and doubt is the way, it's not despair any longer, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's the way to truth. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that, that you see that, it, uh, it's, it's that issue that is so prevalent that blocks collaboration mm -hmm. continually because you have to trust uh, you know, it's like, uh, uh, it's a funny kind of thing. It's, you know, in all's well that ends well. It's, it's the virtue of an if. 
you, you, you know, you know. As you like it. Pardon? It's as you, as like, you it. like it. I'm yeah. sorry. Right. It ends well. The condition, living right. with the if. That's right. The conditionality right. of life. Yeah, and I think, yeah. you know, if you do it, I do it. You know, yeah. we do it. Yeah. And it has to happen simultaneously. I understand that. You know, yeah. and, and I think uh, that, um, but yeah. You've also, I think, thought about this um, in, term, in historical terms, because you've been working on uh, the three revolutions, American, French, and Russian. One of the things that's always interested me about the French, which occurs to me now to yeah. ask you this, is one of the mottos, in addition to liberty and equality, is fraternity. Right. Why fraternity? And As does opposed that, to... Uh, well, it wasn't a part of our, I mean, revolutionary oh, no. I motto. Mean, uh, well, I mean, do, do, do you American think... was all about, I guess, liberty and maybe equality. But fraternity, that's an interesting thing to put up there in, in lights. Yeah, I, I think that's you know, true. Even though the uh, the year after the Declaration of Rights of Man as Citizen, you know, uh, was uh, uh, published a Declaration of the Rights of Woman as Citizen, mm -hmm. right? And she was guillotined the year after. <laughs> so, right. Well, they might not have worked, but they had an ideal there of some kind of. Oh no, I mean, I mean, large but, scale community. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Brotherhood. I mean, yeah, but I think yeah. I think they're 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 really exploring the nature of rights. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and the constitution of a person. Uh, and I think, you know, so, I mean, I, I was looking at this. Uh, I did the three revolutions thing. This is something I did up at the Harvard Club mm -hmm. and uh, and also in New York and in Washington. In, in sort of 10 meetings, uh, um, we were looking uh, at um, the American Revolution was of interest to me. And I don't know that I now think the, the revolution was anything more than a rebellion. Mm hmm but that the revolution happened in 1860 or, or, or after 1865, yeah. and or we're still struggling with it. Uh, I mean, I did, uh, uh, I was interested in uh, the way they wrote themselves into existence. The founding fathers. The founding, yeah, that yeah. They, they actually, that they, they wrote themselves into existence. My ex-father-in-law wrote a book. He, won a, he was at the Institute. He was this political philosopher, a guy named Sebastian de Grazia. Uh, wrote wrote uh, a country with no name, you know, that is sort of about how the United States was kind of a default name. It wasn't going to be Columbia, you know, things yeah. like that was interesting. And that, that they always had to name themselves in, in a sense. And uh, But for, for me, what was of interest there was uh, issues of who had a voice. Franchise. Franchise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to me that the French Revolution was so focused on, on rights, on what, what the constitution of a person was, uh, you know, and um, uh, and it was very interesting that the, the, you, the uh, um, eulogy I sent you today, the obituary that I wrote on Brother Robert, ends uh, with uh, uh, Brother Robert at the age of 92, standing at my house over on Hanover Street, because I, I used to live there, uh, um, leading everyone at this 92nd birthday party and singing the French national anthem. I say yes. <laughs> right, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. and so you'll see that it'll come up. <laughs> yeah, and that, but I think the issue of, of uh, uh, for me, those three revolutions were important because that they are absolutely current right now. How so, current? Um, well, I mean, I think that for us, the issue of, of the nature of the franchise and, mm -hmm. and, and what we think of in terms of a human being who is human? Who has rights? Mm -hmm. And even more independent, more importantly, 
in terms of uh, uh, the things that were being struggled with leading up to the Russian Revolution, which is to look at the, the nature of community. In other words, what is your relation to the community? I don't think I would be an advocate of, of uh, the turn it took either there or in China uh, because there's no individuality. You know, I mean, it, it's, but in a sense, those are those are, like, are very do real you, options. Yeah. yeah. Do you think Marx is making will, is making or will make a comeback? Uh, the reason I ask is we had a, a lecture. We had a lecturer here some not too long ago, um, Matthew Crawford, who's written mm -hmm. a number of books. But he's a kind of a kind of new kind of Marxist, where mm -hmm. the issue is not the um, uh, the workers being uh, having their their labor stolen from them, in yeah. effect, but but uh, people's attention, their consciousness, their attentiveness, being stolen by this media saturated technology crazy environment, in which one is always looking at something, advertisements, films, videos, um, people's head in their phone, that it's. That that's the that's the new revolutionary uh, um, uh, action against that. I, I think that we still uh, see ourselves as economic beings, uh, and it's it's that, and that there's some sort of a uh, a science. Uh, 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 all. Marxist type things are, are are to entrapped in science, it seems to me, into a certain uh, uh, misunderstanding of the nature of science. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think I think m more importantly, I think that's what's at issue: science and technology, uh, and uh, uh, as opposed to uh, anything that Marx touches on. You know, I think that, uh, and I think all uh, Marxist revisions essentially are looking toward uh, some sort of a science of something. Uh, and I think we really uh, uh, need to begin thinking through uh, uh, who, who are we? I mean, what are we to be if... if uh, um, Where are we going? That's the other yeah, half of the, yeah. of the and question. I, I, yeah, and I think that... it. Uh, Where do you think we are going? I, I think we would like to go into the present. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so I think we'd like to go. I mean, I think we we have to stop going into some uh, some fantasy uh, uh, that displaces us and begin to really look at wh where we are and what's needed. Uh, and right now, I'm not. Uh, I think that that's why I think that uh, it, it's got to be through education. But it would take a, a, a generation or two. Mm -hmm. to to uh, take those steps. And so I'm not hopeful at the moment uh, uh, about where we're going. Uh, I think that uh, in terms of our politics, I, th I see very little difference. Uh, uh, well, you said a moment ago that two sides in our political system are not listening to each other. Well, I think they're incapable of, of anything. I, mean, I don't think... Uh, it was interesting. Uh, uh, I, I ran a, a seminar 
uh, a year after Katrina. When was Katrina? 2004, 2005. Yeah. There was a, a program that, that was thinking, how can we get the two sides to work together when it seemed, still seemed feasible? And, uh, and so 20 people uh, were in a group and they couldn't be governors or senators, but they could be members of the House or they could be lieutenant governors. In other words, the, the future leaders of the two parties mm-hmm. would form a group of, of 20 people and they would spend two years together in, in uh, sort of discussions and traveling to the Middle East and traveling to China. And uh, I had them uh, in their second meeting, uh, which was uh, supposed to happen in Aspen. But people who were in the group uh, said, no one is going to believe we're really doing any work if we go to Aspen. <laughs> I can't do that. This is now 2005 or six, And so this is a year after Katrina, yeah. which is the point of this. And so uh, it was suggested that we do it in New Orleans. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the place was just simply still flooded. And so I had, I had a lot of people... Uh, 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 Gabby Giffords, the, you know Mark Kelly's wife, who was mm-hmm. shot, and now he, Mark Kelly, the senator, uh, were in the group, and and uh, so ten Demo- ten or eleven Democrats, ten Republicans, and I think what they had in common that they really were worried about and they could talk about is how are they going to raise enough money for their primaries? That's all. Yeah, you know, in a sense, mm-hmm. that was pretty disheartening. Yeah. You know, and that went on, and I don't think it ever gotten any better than that. You know, and so it, if you, uh, uh, well, this, this was, comes up even in Tocqueville, I think. Yeah, absolutely, the worry that absolutely. one has, and yeah. when there's constant rotation in office, yeah. is yeah. that's what they're thinking yeah, about. Right? How do you stay in? How do you? Right. And we're seeing it. How do you, you know, really care for the common good when right. you have to care for your immediate good? Continuing the Conversation is a 20-episode web and podcast series produced by the St. John's College Communications Office in partnership with 12FPS and A Warehouse Productions. To continue the conversation with St. John's College, which offers a bachelor's degree in liberal arts, in-person and online master's degrees in liberal arts and Eastern classics, as well as summer academy for high school students and summer classics for lifelong learners, Go to sjc.edu.